today. Uh, the first thing I want to do is I want to read to you our passage today, and I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, we don't always do that, but uh, in the book of Nehemiah, when Ezra read the Word of God, the people stood. Jesus often in the synagogues, when he was reading the Scriptures, he also stood. So let's read this together, Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, your word is open before us. It is all-powerful, transformative, sufficient, timeless, without error. And God, we read your word to set it aside above all other things today, including my words. I am happy to be silent today, if only that you are heard. God, I gladly become invisible if you would be made visible to people today. Father, we are unable as human communicators, we are unable to cause encouragement, belief, conviction. God, we are utterly dependent upon you doing those things. So I trust you today. Do the work of illumination. Help us to understand. And God, help us to apply these truths to our lives. We love you. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat there. If you haven't already, would you go ahead and open up your Bibles to that passage in Acts 2, 42 through 47. As you're getting there, Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 23, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sounds very strong and very authoritative. Of course, Jesus says, if I build this church, I'm the builder of the church. I build it my way. And I promise you that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a very beautiful truth. It's a very beautiful promise that is from our Lord Jesus Christ. But this promise is only for churches who follow Jesus' divine blueprints for the church. For any church that veers away from the blueprints, they lose the promise and the security that Satan won't ever overrun their church. And if they do not submit to the blueprints of Jesus' church, all those churches will eventually be ecclesiastical corpses. What we're doing at this church in this series called Reset is we're looking at the blueprints of Jesus' church. LifePoint Church has been around for over 110 years now. And if we are going to continue to survive and thrive in the world that we live in today, it won't be because we're smart and strong. It won't be because we're creative 
and cool like the culture. It will be only because we believe in the divine blueprint, the ancient and established church, the way that Jesus tells us to do it. That's what we're looking at in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Those blueprints is something we've been walking through every single week. The very first thing that we saw in the church that Jesus builds is that they were a spirit-dependent church, meaning that any power of conversion and sanctification, any movement of God that happened in their church, all glory be to the Holy Spirit, not man and his gifts. That was the first thing that they were. The second thing that we saw, they were a learned church. Right? They weren't an all heart, no head church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and they did it continually, meaning that no one in their church ever graduated from the Jesus College. They were always learning. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to prayer, which showed that they were not independent. They showed that they were very dependent upon God, so they often cried out to God all throughout the course of their day, not just at meal times and before church. This church was also devoted to fellowship, meaning they did life together. Not, they didn't go to a, a hall in the church. No, they, they, they did life together. Uh, seven days a week, they were gathering in the church on Sunday, Lord's Day in the gathering, and then through the week, they're breaking bread at homes, and they're doing real fellowship in physical ways. They weren't meeting online. They were on the ground. They weren't in pixels. They were in person. This was a fellowshipping church. The next thing we saw, Jordan led us so well last week in telling us that the early church was an evangelizing church, that all of the good things that God was doing in the church did not just terminate on them and their frozen chosen church. They went to reach people. They evangelized to the, to the people, and because they were not only proclaiming the gospel with their lips, but also with their lives, that many were being added to the church, and the Lord added to them number day by day those that were being saved. Now, it is very important for us to remember why they were doing all of those things. They're knocking them out. Like, like y'all are knocking them out right now. Like, our church is doing really good practicing all of these things right now. I'm very proud, very happy, and encouraged to see all of the things being put into practice. But it is very important for us to remember why they're doing it and why we are doing it. These people in the early church are not doing all of these things to try to earn the love of God. They're doing all of these things because they already have received the love of God. They are not doing these things so that one day they might be saved. They're doing these things because they have been saved. Not doing these good deeds in the hopes that one day they might go to heaven. No, they're doing these things already because they believe that heaven had come down to them in the person of Jesus Christ. That is a very important thing for us to remember That might be news to you, but also the more you walk with Jesus, the longer you will forget that. We're all prone to forgetting that and thinking that we're functioning, doing these things by our own might and our own power. We do these things because of the gospel, right? That is also a very important reminder as we talk about the very last mark of the early church today to remember that. And this mark today that we'll see is that they were a generous church. They were a generous church. They were generous with their money, and they were generous with their possessions. Can you already feel the tension in the room? (laughs) 
things we don't speak of at church. A couple of quotes. Here's the first one. I can't wait to preach on money, said no pastor ever. Here's another one. I can't wait to hear a sermon about money, said no church member ever, right? (laughs) Why is that? Why is it there is this, uh, we're already kind of feeling that thickness in the air today. Here's a few reasons uh, why I think it's that way. Number one, we get defensive about the things that hurt the worst. That's our, that's our natural disposition. So if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, it's the one that yelps, that's the one that got hit, right? So today, as I throw this sermon rock out in this room, the ones who are stewarding their finances to the glory of God, they will not be bothered today. They will not yelp. They'll only be encouraged by their continued faithfulness. But if you are not stewarding your finances well, maybe that rock hit a sore subject. Because I know by experience that money is often one of the last things that we surrender to Jesus Christ. I think another reason that this is a difficult subject is because if you've been exposed to any level of church, either growing up in church or you've been around the church, you have seen people in the church mismanage money and you become a skeptic, right? The first group you'll see uh, maybe the PhDs, those pastors with PhDs, the Pentecostal hairdos. And so uh, what they do is they're like, God is a Powerball, Give a little bit to him and he'll make it rain in your life, right? That's, they misuse and they abuse that prosperity gospel nonsense. And when you hear about money, you're like skeptic. No. The other reason you might have been, you actually might have grown up in church and you might have actually given to a church. They said, give to this. Uh, this is something we're going to do. And you've seen men mismanage the money. So because of those two reasons, when the church today talks about money, you say, hey, I gave the church the finger a long time ago. And every time they talk about it, you can just take it and get it out of here. Let me speak to you for a moment. We are not people who are governed by experience. We are people who are governed by the scriptures. Don't let a distrust of man lead you to a distrust of God. Another reason I think that uh, we preach, well, let me just say this. Why preach on money then? Why we do this, a couple reasons. Uh, The first thing I want to tell you is we don't have a campaign going on today, no giving campaign. Um, The church at 21 had the most profitable financial year ever. Like because of your faithfulness, your giving in this church, we were better off and more financially healthy. And this is on the back end of a pandemic, y'all. The Lord is blessing this church financially very well. Now, Don't take the fact that it took us six months to fix a pothole in the parking lot. You know you're all thinking that, right? So good. Why can't you fix the dang parking lot out there? I'll go to Home Depot. It's a long story. I'll tell you offline. Anyway, we are doing well. All right, the church is doing really, really good. Um, So another reason I'm not up here to do any kind of plea for your paycheck. Like, that's not what this is about. I'm a simple dude. Some of y'all know that I'm a simple man. And so uh, 
I'm, I'm, I, my lifestyle is simplistic, okay? I don't shop at Gucci. This came from Goodwill. It might be yours, right? <laughs> if it is, thank you for your donation, right? I, um, man, I drive a 2005 Tundra. It's got 226,000 miles on it. And so I'm, I'm a simple dude. Uh, I don't have to worry about where I park my truck, if you know what I mean. And so as I do those things, like I'm not against you having a nicer car. Please hear me. I'm not judging anybody who's got a nice car. But I just don't want to be the guy that says, gets up here and says, hey, don't put your treasure and things in moth and rust destroy. And then walk out to my car and roll over to my Beamer and go, boop, boop. <laughs> right? You don't want to see that from your pastor, right? So I don't want to be that guy. I'm a simple guy. There's no ploy or plea here to get your money. Uh, so why is it that we are going to preach about this today? Because it's in the text. It's right there in the passage. And I love you too much to do any kind of exegetical gymnastics with you and vault over money in the fear that you may not come back next week. So I will step into that, potentially knowing that awkward chatter may be in the hallways and in your car on the way home that says, there goes the church again, talking about money. All they want is my money. Like, I love you too much to withhold this from you. Another reason we teach on it today is because the Bible teaches on it, right? 2,000 verses in the Bible that speak to money and possessions, Think about Jesus, for example. Let's go to the New Testament. New Testament, one out of every 10 uh, verses of Scripture speak about money and possessions. 16 of 38 parables of Jesus were about money and possessions. One out of every four sermons from Jesus was about money and possessions. Now, let's think about that for a second. What if I begin to preach about money and possessions one out of every four Sundays here? Here's two things that would happen. Number one, I would get accused of only wanting your money. And yet, sadly, I would be a lot more in line with Jesus' teachings. That's the reality of why we're talking about this today. He had a lot of things to say about money. Principles like how we spend our wealth is a great indicator of our spiritual health. Jesus said, you can't love me and love money, you will eventually betray one of those things. He says, where your treasure is, your wallet will be there too. So today, as we look at the glimpse inside the early church, I think what we're going to see is that our financial lives and our spiritual lives are a lot more intertwined than we actually believe. All right, so let's look at this, Acts 2 Let's look at the first one in 44 and 45. And if you're doing your reading, by the way, this is going to sound very familiar to you. Acts 2, 44 through 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, flip over to Acts 4. 32 through 35. We're going to see a, almost a duplicate thing here. And it says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Um, Callie and I have four grandsons. Uh, four of them with the ages of six months to six years. I, I know, right? I know what you're thinking already. Uh, but here's what they do. Every single time they come over to our house. So what they do is they run through the door and they don't greet anybody. They don't say hi uh, to Pop Pop or Granny. They, don't, they just run straight in and they make a beeline right to the playroom. They go into the playroom. That's where all the toys are, all over the place. Like Callie's laid this place out. It looks like Toys R Us threw up in there. And there's toys all over the floor. And they just beeline straight in there. And they start to grab every one of the toys. And they're gathering as many as their little fingers can hold on to. And when they get enough of those toys, they then sprint off to the rest of the house like little squirrels and start to hide them. Like they're in couches and they're, they're tucking them away. And, and so they're just, they're hoarding their stuff. They're not sharing their stuff. I mean, they are, they're arguing, they're fighting over stuff. They're pretty much vipers and diapers, if you know what I mean. They're just going at each other. And so they, they do that. And so I love my grandsons, right? We love them to death. But they're stingy little sinners. <laughs> just like probably your small kids too, Right? Now, I say that because looking at this picture of the early church, they're nothing like that. They're the complete opposite of that. Opposite. They aren't, there's no hoarders in the early church. They're all sharing. What does the passage say? That all were sharing. Not, not some of them. All of them were sharing. They had all things in common. Sharing their possessions and belongings, including their homes, and distributing those who had needs. In that early church, no one went to bed hungry or homeless. Now, let me say this. Some people would look at that and say, this is a form of cultish Christian communism. They're being forced to do this. That's one argument there, that nobody had their own stuff. And so I pushed back on that in a couple of ways. Number one, we know in the passage of 42 through 47 that they were breaking bread in what? Their own homes. They owned their own homes. They owned their own stuff. They were just sharing them. They weren't being forced to do these things. Another reason we know they weren't forced is because it said they had glad and generous hearts. So the point is, this was a mutual voluntary generosity that the early church had. The question for us is, what was the secret sauce? Why are they doing this? Are they doing it to just be good people? Like, is that just what you're supposed to do? Be moral, be, uh, get a good pat on the back from one another? Is that why they're doing these things? This is the key to the entire rest of the sermon today, the motivation that they had to give. They gave, point number one, they gave because of the gospel. They gave because of the gospel. They were not giving to receive good guy, humanitarian, Walter Payton type awards, if you know what I mean. 
They weren't giving to get pats on the back. They weren't giving to try to pay a debt off to God in the hopes that, God, I've done enough. One day, would you just please tell me I could come into your gates with thanksgiving and praise? That's not why they were giving. They weren't giving to get the love of God. They were giving because they believed that God, a generous God, had sacrificially and generously given them a Savior in Jesus Christ. You see, they had just heard the gospel, right? Didn't Peter just preach that to them in Acts 2? Peter stood up and said, hey, you are a sinner and your sin killed Jesus. That's what they said. Your sin crucified Jesus. It killed Jesus. It held him on the cross. You put him up there and you have a sin debt to pay to a holy God. God requires from you your life. The wages of your sin is death. And they heard that and it cut them to the heart. They're like, Peter's right. It was my sin that put him there. I killed him. But here's the good news. Of course, the rest of the gospel was that God did something about that. Peter said that God, according to the perfect plan of God, God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that if you would just repent and believe in this Jesus, you would have the forgiveness of sins. You would inherit eternal life. And Jesus had paid your debt. And so they, they heard that gospel. They believed it. They believed it. Now, here's what I want you to see. They did not just agree to a statement of faith that Peter told them to agree to. They didn't just go to a church membership class. Oh, yeah, checkbox, I agree a lot of stuff. They didn't just pray a prayer so they could skirt hell. That's not why they were believing. Their belief changed not only their mind, but it changed their hearts. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't just change your mind. It changed your desires, your affections, things that you love and treasure. And because they truly believed, and there were no fake conversions this day, they had new hearts, and these new hearts saw money and possessions in light of the gospel. This is the absolute key, church, to generosity. If you don't understand gospel generosity as the root and motivation behind your giving, you will never give generous. You'll never be a generous person in a way that pleases God. This is the only form of generosity that pleases God. And I say that on purpose because you can spend your entire life in humanitarian ways, giving, 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 but if it's not because of the gospel, it's all worthless rags to God. He said, I don't want any of it. Because all you do is get all the glory. You get all the pats on the back. He said, I don't want any of it. You give out of gospel generosity. So do you, you see this in John 3.16, of course, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal Life, we give because God gave. We are charitable people because we have received the charity of God. We give because we have received grace. 
God's riches at Christ's expense. We believe that we were born spiritually bankrupt before God. Nothing to offer. Credit score spiritual zero. Massive sin debt to God. Never can be repaid. But we believed, of course, that Jesus Christ came to pay our sin debt on the cross. To appease God. To become the propitiation for our sins. We believe that. And people who believe that and trust in that, God lavishes grace, unmerited favor. The generosity of God not only gives you Jesus' righteousness, he gives you eternal security. He seals you to the very, very end. He chose you before you chose him. He's guaranteed you an imperishable future in heaven that not even you can screw up and not even death or the devil can take away from you. He's given you the Holy Spirit to provide you with everything that you need until that day. God has lavished immeasurable grace upon his people. And if you truly understand that and you really believe it, not as a profession of faith, but an actual possession, the natural thing you will do is you will give. There's no way around it. Listen to what John MacArthur says about this. Generosity is impossible apart from our love of God and his people. But with such love, generosity not only is possible, it's inevitable. This, to be honest with you, this makes me wonder if some people who really, if they really do believe in the gospel, people who don't give at all, it makes me wonder, do you, do you really understand the gospel or are you just doing church and religion? If you truly believe in Jesus, and I mean head, heart, hands, you will be a generous person. In light of that, if the heart is right, the hands will follow, right? Let's see how, how, what it looks like if our hands actually demonstrate that we do believe. Our hands will call us liars or it will call us faithful. The early church gave obediently. They gave because of the gospel. Now they gave obediently. How did they know how much to give? Like, our question often is like, okay, well, how much do I have to give to be okay? Like, what's that line? How did they know how much to give? Remember back in verse 42, and it said that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching? What did we say what the apostles were teaching? Well, they were teaching the Old Testament. They were also teaching Jesus' teaching, but they were teaching the Old Testament. So if they were being taught the Old Testament, they knew that the first thing to be obedient to God was to give the tithe. The tithe, there's that dirty word, right? Here we go, Exodus 23, 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground, or yeah, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Numbers 18, 21. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. They were giving 
a tithe to the Levites. It was their priestly duty in the church. This is why we give our tithes to the storehouse for the preaching of God's word. Here's Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So as we honor the Lord with our first fruits, clearly they were in an agrarian society, so they're, uh, they're tithing uh, crops, not cash like us. Um, but what they did is they practiced first fruits giving. This is what we do in our first level of being obedient to God as we give our tithes. We give our tithes before Uncle Sam takes his cut. We give our tithes before we give to Amazon, our mortgage, our kids, and dare I say, Starbucks. <laughs> Even Starbucks. Think about what you pay at Starbucks. It's crazy, add it up, but it's first fruit. So tithing means tenth, right? Tithing means tenth. So if you, by definition here, give anything less than 10%, it's called tipping. The problem is there's nothing in the Bible that says tip God. It says tithe to God. And partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Let me show you Malachi here. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And you say, how have we robbed you, God? In your tithes and contributions. So they weren't bringing in the whole tithe. They were bringing less than. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Malachi said that not tithing is actually robbing God. Now, if you're someone who tips 2%, 3%, you would never with your lips say, I'm robbing God today. <laughs> you just wouldn't say that. But yet, that's exactly what Malachi says that we're doing. We, that's just, we don't think about it. We think, God, aren't you pleased with my 3%? Like, isn't that good enough for you? I mean, no one's perfect, right, God? We're under grace. That's not the way we think about that, right? But yet, the scriptures confront us with the reality that says we're robbing God if we're not tithing to God. The next question, does Jesus affirm this in the New Testament? And here's where we get into some controversy. So let me, let me, let me see what the Lord says first. Woe to you, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus said, you, you tithe. You should tithe. You just should have got the heart right too. That's the point of the text there. You neglected the weightier matters the heart was the issue, but yeah, you, you should have tithed. That's the right thing to do. Another reason I believe here in our text today in Acts 4, if you'll notice when they were giving the possessions, they brought them. Where did they put the possessions? It says they put them at the apostles' feet. 
That was there. I believe that was there. Here's the tithe. They were giving it to the church, the apostles. Now, let me address a couple of things to those who might be pushing back on this idea. Uh, here's the first one. Some say we're under grace, not under law. Tithe was law. The first thing I would do to address that is in the book of Exodus, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. It predated the law. I don't have time to pack that. You can go back and read that. But the tithe existed before the law. Now, the second reason I'm going to push back on that is some say we're under grace. We're not under law. It's all grace giving. It's whatever we want to give um, in our hearts to whatever we've decided and all of those kind of things. So let me, let me say this. There are a lot of well-respected theologians that I listen to and read who say that very same thing. They say, yes. We're not under this. It is all grace giving in the New Testament. But here's, the, here's what they say. They say grace giving exceeds the law. It does not come underneath and is less than the law requires. So they don't look at that and say, oh, cool, permission slip. I only have to give 2% now because we're not under it. No, they understood that Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, grace in the New Testament required more, not less. If you lust, you're committing adultery. If you have hate in your heart, now you're committing murder. That sounds like an increase, doesn't it? That's because that's exactly what the New Testament teaching does. It increases. And and by and large, the people that say we're under grace giving, by and large, they're just using that as a reason to skirt the tithe. Listen, I don't know where you're at in that, but I would say this. It's not a math problem. It's not a calculator problem. Usually, it's a heart problem. Usually, that's the core issue of this. This is about you trusting God or not trusting God. I'm a church member, by the way, just like you. My kids go to this church. I'm a part of this church. I give myself to this tithe. And I will tell you as well, I put myself out there. There was a time... Where in my life, and me and my wife would share this with you because I have no shame about this whatsoever. Maybe 15 years ago, 15, 16, our finances were a wreck. Upside down, debt all over the place. I'm talking going to cash advance about once a month. That was our life. I didn't have a budget problem though. Because if you looked at my kids, they looked good. They had the best cleats. The best uniforms. They made it to all. We, we went to all the hotels for the sports team. I had no problem there. We're eating out all these places. Oh, payday. Oh, what do I do now? Cash advance. I would not trust God. I said, How in the world can I give you 10% of my income? I can't afford to do that, God. Somewhere in there, I don't remember the sermon, I don't remember the day. The Lord said, Test me, RC. You try me. This is the only time in the entire Bible that God says it's okay to test him. We did that. We tested him. We tried it out. Didn't make sense on a spreadsheet. People probably thought I was crazy. But I will tell you this. The day we started tithing, I've never stepped back into a check advance place in my life. Never. 
I tell you that story because I have no shame whatsoever because I know all of my mismanagement of stewardship of God's money is covered in the blood of Christ. I tell you that story because if it makes God look good, I don't care what it makes me look like. You put God to the test and you watch and see what he won't do for you. Let's go to this next section. They didn't just give obediently, they also gave generously. Generously. Tithing isn't generosity, tithing is obedient. Generosity starts uh, when you begin to do things above and beyond the tithe. That's what the early church was doing in many ways as well. They were giving to those who had need. The apostles weren't guilting them, of course, again. They had glad and generous hearts. And the needs of the community of faith, they were all being met. As I said earlier, no hungry, no homeless. People were selling their houses to give to one another. And this picture of the church in Acts, it, is, it echoes the early Old Testament community of faith of what they were doing, right? Let me show you in Deuteronomy 15. <clears throat> if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Psalm 37, listen to this one. I've been young, I've been old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Here's the takeaway. When you are a part of the local church, known, not an attender, but an actual contender for the faith, you're known here, you're connected, you're involved, needs arise in the church. How do our needs get met? When a tornado blows through your house, a flood hits your basement, you got to rip out all your carpet, you lose your job, where does the community of faith come into play? In Rome, they didn't have social services. They didn't have GoFundMe pages. They turned to one another. They had such intimate fellowship with one another. They didn't have to go anywhere else. I'm not against GoFundMe pages. That's not my point. My point is when someone in here goes down, it's our glad responsibility to take care of their needs no matter what. Giving cars, giving homes, giving clothes, giving money if need be. It's our glad responsibility. Now, I'm not talking about paying for someone's Xbox Live account. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about needs, not greeds. This is what the church does. Isn't that comforting when you think about that for a second? That if you're a part of the local church and we're functioning as we ought to, that you will never have to beg for bread? Isn't that amazing? That you will never be on the side of the road 
holding a cardboard sign. This is the generosity of God overflowing generosity of people. How do we do that in our church? I'll say this. Um, I see this happening a lot in our church. It's one of the good things about our, our church here. There's a giving, we're a giving people. Someone will have a baby, someone's giving meals. They're showering them with gifts and meals and stepping in and helping each other move and time. And, and all. we do that very well in our church. Now, they, everyone in the church did it here. So once again, my desire is that everybody would be participating in this and not just some. We give above and beyond the tithe through things like uh, missionaries, we support missionaries. That's generosity. When we give uh, kids boxes at Christmas time, the giving tree and those kind of things, that's giving above and beyond the time. That's practicing generosity. Taking a, a meal to a neighbor across the street, that is practicing generosity. Parachurch organizations that we have partnered with locally, that we've vetted so we know that the money's good, those are ways that you can practice generosity in the church. And they did this without any apostle guilting them to do it. They had glad and generous hearts. The last point is this. They gave sacrificially. Sacrificially. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, So that you might by his poverty become rich. Paul says Jesus was rich. But he gave up his richness to become poor so that we might become rich. Now, before we get ahead of that and confused, Paul's not saying that he's going to make you healthy and wealthy and have stacks of cash. That's not what he means by rich here. He means you will have the inheritances of heaven. Everything that is Jesus is now imputed to your account. Everything. So the point is this. If you lose everything in this world, your possessions, your homes, your cars, the American dream, if you lose everything, in Jesus' eyes, you are rich because you ain't taking none of that stuff with you to heaven. No U-Hauls behind hearses, right? We've heard that before. You're all going in empty-handed, but when you get there, you are beyond rich. And this is exactly what they did. I think here in this text as well, Paul wants us to reflect that God gave sacrificially, meaning it hurt him. He felt it, Right? This wasn't like God had a lot of sons and, hey, just pick the weakest one, kill him. Like, he had one son, his delight, the heart of heaven, right? He gave up that son, the most precious thing to him, he gave it up sacrificially. And then when we understand that, Paul's point is, then we can understand We need to give sacrificially, meaning we should feel it. It should hurt us when we give. What I mean by that, you should feel it. It should cost you some comfort. It should cost us some comfort. We don't give all the canned goods away that no one ever eats anyway, right? They don't cost you anything. 
He don't go through your closet and take all the clothes that you were going to give to a yard sale and then turn and give them to someone. That don't cost you anything. Just gets the stuff out of your house. The point is, is that we give to where it hurts and we feel it. These guys were giving away homes. My house. They didn't go homeless, of course, but these are the people that had excess wealth that could afford to do that. Now, surely they felt it. When you give up your house, can we all agree? You feel that, right? We should feel the giving. It might cost you your Netflix, your Hulu, some weekends out, some great steak dinners. It might cost you some of those things, but it costs God a lot more than that. They practiced this generosity, and because they did, people in the world noticed. People in the world noticed, and it caught their attention. Listen to what Emperor Julian, he was the emperor in the mid-300s, he noticed their generosity. Now, he had tried to stomp out Christianity, as most of the Roman emperors had done, and so he couldn't extinguish the church, right? Because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But he fought it, fought it, fought it, and this was his response to why he couldn't do anything about it. He said this. He said the reason for their growth was because the Christians give charity to the poor. He said they not only feed their own poor, but they feed ours as well, welcoming them to their agape love, they attract them as children are attracted with cakes. Their generosity advanced the gospel. Now, let me ask you a question. This is one of those heart check questions. If the advancement of the gospel was dependent upon your generosity, would it go around the world or would it go down the drain? Would it stop at you or would it go out from you? If you don't know, look at the statements we just sent out a couple of weeks ago at the church, the giving statements. Those giving statements will reveal what you give. And they will either call you faithful or they'll call you a fake. They will either call you a liar or they will, they will call you, yes, Jesus is your Lord. Our statements will reveal those things about us. They say a lot about us, not just about our finances. They say what we value the most in our lives. They reveal all of these things. So I'm going to end this in a couple of ways. First of all, let me... Um, I, I should have said this up top. I come in peace. I mean you no harm. I do love you. Believe me, I do. <laughs> um, these are hard things. And so I don't want to do any kind of condemning today. That's not the point of this. Uh, the Holy Spirit will do some conviction in there, no doubt. But I don't want to leave you without hope here today. I want to help you move into obedience and say yes to God. Because I think some of you, are, you're, you might be saying, okay, I agree. But I'm jammed up with debt. I've been years walking through this debt, and I just can't do it. L listen, it, you, you didn't get in the situation you did in overnight. It's probably going to take a little time to get out of that. But I would say this. Start by saying yes to the tithe, to the whole amount. 
Partial obedience is disobedience. Think about it like this. If you came to me and I met with you and you said, hey, I've been murdering a lot of people. (laughs) Do you think I would ever look at you and say, well, start by murdering less people. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'm, I'm looking at a lot of porn. Would I ever tell you, hey, just cut back on your porn. You can't quit cold turkey. Would I ever tell you that? No. Start by tithing. Just say yes to God. Put him to the nitty-gritty test. And, and, and as that shakes things, I'm not going to tell you that's not going to cost you some lifestyle comfort, right? I'm not saying he won't do those things. But this is where the church comes in and says, hey, let me help you in some areas. You say yes to God, we'll come alongside of you and help you manage a budget in such a way that will honor God with your finances. This is where you call the church. But it does start by you saying yes to God. So how you would physically do that, you can check a box on a blue card. You can go on the app to start up your regular tithing. It's what I do every single month. Uh, you can go on, on, uh, online. As I said, you can reach out to us after service. We'll, we'll help you. We want to walk through that and just know when you come to God and say, yes, I'm going to do this, God's not saying it's about time. Like, oh my gosh, I've been waiting. No, he's just like, come on. It's all good. Grace, grace, love. That's what is waiting for you on the other side. Listen, if we're going to impact the world, y'all, the world that you and I want better. No one in the room is going to disagree with that. We all know it's crazy. We want to impact this world, not just for us, but for our kids' sake, for our grandkids' sake. And if we're going to do it the way we've been walking through the series by proclaiming the gospel, that's the only way the world's going to change is through heart change, right? Giving is how you support the advancement of the gospel. You want a world to change? Start by changing your view on money and start by giving to God for the advancement of the gospel which spreads all across the world. That's what you give. You you give to the local church and we're so thankful that we have a staff of people that love, love, humbly love you and glad that you allow us to do that week in and week out. We give unto God. Let me show you a, a video really quick as we end here that probably just should wrap this thing up. This is from a couple who go to our church, um, Becky and Travis Wisma, and they've got a great story to tell. Um, they might be, they'll probably be here sometime today, and if you see them, uh, man, they'd love to share with you what God has done, but quick video, check it out. Love you guys. Come see us, and uh, we'll see you next week. Becky Wisma. This is my husband, Travis. Uh, So we've been married about five years. Um, I think year three was our very challenging year. Travis had struggled staying with jobs, and um, I had found out through a co-worker that he had left a job, and um, I was not aware of it, and it had been going on for a while, and that's kind of when we hit our, our, our low point. Was I being the leader of the household? No. Um, Was I living the life that I should be living? No, not at all. I put us so far in debt, it was ridiculous. There was was a continuing theme, you know, going through this whole 
ordeal, this whole process, this whole life change. And the continuing theme was I'd work my way up and with my words or, you know, fake it till you make it kind of person. And then I'd make it and not like it. The amount of money that, that we were in debt that I had no idea about, finding out just the truth of where our finances like really sat, um, that he had been hiding because he was just ashamed of the fact that he wasn't able to handle it. I, I couldn't imagine giving $10 a week to church. I couldn't justify things that weren't food, you know, and, and or something that satisfied me. Because I, I felt as if I were saved, you know, a couple years ago. You know, somewhere along the line, somebody told me that it's not a guarantee that you being saved, that you're going to allow Jesus to take over your entire life. Not gonna surrender everything at that moment. As those things come up, as those those sins in your head and, and those the sins that you are committing, you know, the lying, the the buying stuff and not telling anybody about it and the, not realizing how that affects them, I was looking at it as how it affected me. And I was looking for happiness and materialistic things and not happiness in, in Jesus. We started leaning into our church family, our small groups, our friends through church. Uh, we started meeting with our pastors um, and having kind of check-ins with them for what we were going through. I realized at that point what I had been doing to my wife and my daughter, um, and it just crumbled me. Because we had that, that constant um, help and support to start making adjustments in our life, Travis started taking all of it so serious, which was so needed um, just after the disaster that we were in. It's been difficult to say the least. None of this was easy. There wasn't a single part of this that was easy. Being able to trust in somebody other than myself, um, because I've, I've said this earlier, but I am not a very good savior. I am very poor at being a savior. It's just incredible because at a, just over a year later, what we were in debt, we're now ahead. And I, it doesn't even seem possible. The first time in my life, I actually was doing my job for the glory of God. I wasn't doing my job because I needed to make a paycheck or I needed to have fulfillment or something like that, um, impress her. Um, but every single day I go, I go to work and I do it for the glory of God. We wouldn't be able to be generous with, with our money, with our time, with um, whether that be you know, small groups or um, even in our community or um, in our household. We wouldn't be able to be generous with all of that without, without Jesus. Family will ask me to this day, you know, what did you do? How did you do that? <laughs> Very simple, I did nothing. You know, I surrendered my life to Christ.